You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. there are two books in the Old Testament named after women, the book of Esther and the book of Ruth, two of my favorite books in in all of the Bible. We've worked through one of those a few years back. Now we're going after the other one. On the one hand, two very different stories as Esther was a queen and Ruth a commoner. Esther was a Jew who married a Gentile and Ruth, as we'll see, was a Gentile who married a Jew. Story of Esther opening with a great feast Story of Ruth opening with the greatest of famines. Story of Esther concluding with the death of a villain, namely Haman. The story of Ruth concluding with the birth of a child. On the one hand, two very different stories, and yet both tell the greater story of God's outstretched hand of providence in preserving his people and seeing his redemptive purposes to fulfillment. The book of Ruth, it's, it's anonymous in its authorship so that we don't know for certain who wrote this book. The mention of David and his genealogy at the end, leading many scholars to believe that it was written sometime just prior to or after David ascended the throne as Israel's king. Jewish tradition understanding the author more specifically to be the prophet Samuel. Though both the dating and authorship are difficult to to pin down with any real degree of certainty, however, we're not left to speculation as to when the story of Ruth itself takes place. Picking up in verse 1, the story begins, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The time of the judges spans from the death of Joshua to the coronation of Israel's first king. So that the story of Ruth takes place somewhere between the the 14th and 11th centuries BC. After the entrance of God's people into the promised land in the wake of the Exodus and before the establishment of the Israelite monarchy under the reigns of Saul, David, and Solomon. It was a dark time in, in Israel's hard and happy history. A time when there was yet no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So that the Israelites were, at the time, fairly indistinguishable from the surrounding nations, morally, spiritually, caught up in this recurring cycle of sin, followed by God's judgment, followed by God's deliverance. You can read all about that in the book of Judges, this this sort of downward spiraling of God's people into the darkness of covenant-breaking rebelliousness. In one sense, the, the book of Judges starts out its best and moves toward its worst by the time you get to the end, whereas the book of Ruth starts out at its worst and only gets better as you go along. The time of the judges, it was a time of moral and spiritual debasement. So that the story of Ruth shows how God acted to accomplish his redemptive purposes in one of the darkest moments in all of redemptive history. In the words of one writer, Ruth's story shines through the pages of the Old Testament like a light in the darkness, like a bright star in the night sky. And yet, as I just mentioned, the, the story doesn't start out that way, like a bright star, like a light in the darkness, as it begins with a famine having swept across the land, which most scholars understand to be more than, than the detailing of the background information on the part of the author. A famine in the days when the judges ruled. A theological statement. 
a covenantal statement, a reminder uh, for any of, of this story's earliest hearers or readers of the covenant blessings and curses laid out for Israel in the days of Moses. With covenants, if you go back and you, you study them, you, you see that there, there are these elements that are always part of the covenant. There's the suzerain king, the greater king, and there's the vassal king. And God is always the suzerain king because he's the greater king when he makes a covenant with his people. Also as a part of God's covenants, you have the covenant stipulations, the expectations, what God is calling his people to, followed by the covenant blessings and curses for obedience and disobedience. So that on the one hand, going back to the Mosaic covenant, in the days of the judges, the covenant blessings included words like these. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 6 says, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all the blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field, there it is. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Just a couple of verses later, it continues. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, and the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your livestock, and here it is, and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hands. Covenant blessings of milk and honey, the fruit of the womb, the fruit of the field. On the other hand, in the same chapter of the Bible, Deuteronomy 28, the covenant curses including words like these. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall be you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. There it is. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. There it is again. The increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. It goes on later in that same chapter to say, You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all of your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil of those trees, for your olives shall drop off. Right? It's not to say that places in the world experiencing famine right now are necessarily experiencing such famine because of their rebelliousness toward God. It's simply to say that God was clear in his covenant stipulations with Israel in the days of Moses. In faithful obedience to the Lord, the blessing of a fruitful field in covenant rebelliousness, the curse of a desolate field. So that the Lord cursed the ground in the days of the judges, just as he had cursed the ground 
in the wake of the sin of our first parents in the garden. So that the barren fields of Canaan, as we open up this story of Ruth, were, in the words of C.S. Lewis, God's megaphone, calling his people in the days of the judges to return to him in repentance, in trust, to turn from what was... Uh, from doing what was right in their own eyes, which you see that language over and over again in the book of Judges, and to bow in glad submission to the God who had redeemed them from Egyptian enslavement and brought them into the land of promise. It's in these days of covenant rebellion and widespread famine that we're told, continuing on in verse 1, that a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of the woman, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Right here the, the story zooms in on Bethlehem in Judah. In irony, the name Bethlehem meaning house of bread. In the days of the judges, the bread basket empty. So that the many inhabitants of the land had a decision to make in this moment. The story of Ruth spotlighting one of those many inhabitants, a man by the name of Elimelech, a husband and father in a moment of crisis. Many of you can relate to that, faced with a decision of his own. A decision not at all comparable, just so we're clear, to the average person's decisions to put down roots in one city versus another. Right? Not only had God led his people out of the enslaving shackles of Egypt and brought them to Canaan as the land of his promise and presence, but two, the land of Moab was a place of pagan compromise in those days. It's history tracing back to the incestuous relationship between Lot and his older daughter. It was the Moabites who refused to give the Israelites bread and water as they wandered in the wilderness. It was their king who hired a freelance prophet to curse the Israelites, only for God to turn the intended curse into a blessing. It was the women of Moab with whom the Israelites got deeply entrenched in sexual immorality and pagan sacrifices. Helps to explain why no Moabite, Deuteronomy 23 verse 3, was permitted to enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. In moving his family to Moab, uh, many scholars believe Elimelech did what was right in his own eyes, like so many others in the days of the judges, like so many of us in our own day. Right? If we're honest, we make so many decisions, not only with comfort and security in mind, but without God in mind. I was thinking about this, and there are probably a lot of examples that could be given, but, but one that is very near to what's happening in this story there, there have been a couple people who have relocated, who were part of our church. They moved to a different town, didn't research churches in the area, just assumed that there would be a gospel-centered one there when they landed, just assumed that there would be a church that was rooted and committed to God's word as opposed to felt needs when they landed, only to find that there wasn't. In one of those instances, a marriage eventually deteriorating over time. Those spiritual muscles atrophying which is not to say we shouldn't move, right? It's just to say that if we're honest, again, oftentimes we don't make our choices, our decisions with God at the forefront of our thinking. What is the Lord calling me to? Putting ourselves under submission to the scriptures and what the scriptures teach, inviting God's people around us to speak in, trusting the Holy Spirit within who indwells us, 
Word of God, people of God, spirit of God, decisions to be made in life. Right? The problem wasn't ultimately in the story of Ruth the absence of bread, but rather the absence of a right orientation to the Lord. That instead of running from the land of promise, Elimelech should have run to the Lord for mercy. So many others around him in the days of the judges. Elimelech's name meaning my God is king. His actions declaring my decision is best. His very name condemning his decision on the one hand, while at the same time presenting us with one of the greatest lessons in this story. Namely that God truly is king, right? No matter what we do to try to wreck the story, even our own stories at times, that God is always sovereignly bringing this story of redemption along to its great redemptive end. Still other scholars are a bit more charitable toward Elimelech, recognizing that the author of Ruth, and you'll see this over the course of this story, rarely gives us a clear window into the ethical decisions and motivations of its characters. So that perhaps Elimelech thought that that he could relocate his family to Moab just long enough to escape the famine uh, while avoiding the dangers of religious syncretism. That maybe he could thread that needle. In the language of verse 1, a sojourn, a temporary stay. And yet the decision, as we'll see just verses from now, proved tragic. As Elimelech and his family came to settle in the land of Moab over time so that it became a a place of deeper roots with the turning pages of the calendar. As is oftentimes the the case with our own wanderings from the Lord, is it not? So that what starts out as a sojourn from God over time becomes a new way of life. In the case of Elimelech and his family, verse 3, we're told, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives. And the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Not only is this a time of, of darkness and desolation for Israel as a whole, but personally for Naomi and her family, as the story shifts from Elimelech to Naomi, the lens zooms in on her. The story's beginnings, much like the story of Job, tragic. A woman left widowed, her sons without a father. An incredibly tragic loss for any family. One that might have led Naomi, you might think, and her sons to return to Bethlehem. Except that what, again, started out as a sojourn had become a new way of life. So much so that we're told that Naomi's sons fell in love with and married Moabite women and spent the better part of a decade establishing deeper roots in the land of foreign gods. And with time, more grief and more loss. As not only were Ruth and Orpah unable to conceive all those years, but they too saw the passing of their husbands around the time of their 10-year anniversaries. The beginning of Ruth and the beginning of Job, maybe the, the top two books of the Bible that rival each other in beginning with the greatest of tragedies. Three funerals, a widowed woman and her two widowed daughters-in-law. 
None of them able to read ahead, by the way, to the rest of chapter one and on into chapters two, three, and four in this moment to see what would become of them in the midst of their suffering. As is the case for any of us, right? In the midst of our own experiences of grief and loss, most people, when they preach through the book of Ruth, it's a four-week series giving one week to each chapter. Part of why we're stopping at the end of chapter five is simply to acknowledge that that's where some of us find ourselves even now. We haven't yet seen the famine become a barley harvest just yet. We're right in the midst of grief and loss, or we know someone who is. We can't read ahead. We can't see what awaits in the next sentence of our story, which makes up the next paragraph of our story, which makes up the next chapter of our story. It's why the book of Ruth is so good for our souls. It reminds us that our God is a God, regardless of what our circumstances tell us, who brings redemption out of the ashes of ruin. A God who invites us to pour out our hearts to him in lament, who's big enough to handle our lament, who's not scared of our lament, who invites us to bring our lament to him while trusting that he works all things for good, all things for, good for those who love him. Down to the deepest sufferings and the most tragic of losses, as we'll see in the continuation in the weeks to come of this incredible story. A story reminding us that our lives too, yours and mine, are covered in the fingerprints of the wondrous hand of God's providence. A God who's redemptively involved in the everyday joys and sorrows of our lives. Oftentimes bringing his redemptive purposes to fulfillment in the most unexpected of ways. Again, through the most ordinary, mundane of events and imperfect people like you and me. A God sovereign over both feast and famine. To use that Ecclesiastes 3 language, a God who's sovereign over the seasons of both laughter and mourning, of both dancing and weeping. A God who holds every aspect of our lives in the palm of his hand. And that's a good thing. A God to whom we can turn in repentance and trust when the siren song of Moab, which in the end will only bring heartache and sorrow, rings loudest. A story reminding us that our stories too are not piecemealed stories, but are situated within the greater story of God's redeeming love for us in Jesus Christ. Bringing the imagery of the prodigal son before us, Ian Duguid in his commentary on this morning's passage, he says, In Christ, God comes running to meet us like the father in the story of the prodigal. Whereas Elimelech left the place of famine to seek a false blessing in Moab, Jesus Christ left the glories of heaven to bring us a true blessing on earth. Elimelech and Naomi sent themselves into exile from the land of promise, trying to build their own kingdom rather than waiting for God to do it. Jesus, though, went into exile from his father's presence so that he might rescue us from our own kingdom building and grant us a true and living future in his kingdom. He goes on to say, The God who empties us and strips away however painfully those precious things in which we are trusting knows what it is to be stripped of all of his possessions, left alone and abandoned by his friends and hung empty on a cross. Every tear of loss 
that God inflicts on us is a tear whose cost he himself understands. The pain of God's chastening work, he says, is therefore never harsh. It's never harsh. It is never more than is absolutely necessary to turn us to himself. It is measured and designed to show us the emptiness of the paths we have chosen for ourselves so that we may return to his ways. He continues, what is more, when we do return to him, we discover that it is his delight to fill the void we have created. The father delights to clothe the naked prodigal, exults to honor the humiliated prodigal, thrills to feed the starving prodigal, and rejoices to celebrate with the downcast prodigal. The book of Ruth, it's one of the most endearing love stories in all the Bible. Pointing us to the most endearing love story of all. The story of God's redeeming love for us in Jesus Christ, in whom there is peace and fullness of grace. In a moment, we're going to continue to worship this God of redemption. And we'll give you a few minutes of space with just some instrumentation and no singing to begin with, just to sit with this passage and the so what of it. How, do, how is God meeting you this morning through our time in the scriptures? Are you in a place where perhaps you've gone down the path of doing what, what was right in your own eyes, just kind of setting God to the margins and making decisions for you, for your family, and your parenting, and your marriage, in the workplace. Perhaps this is an opportunity to say no more. To call it a sojourn rather than setting deeper roots on that path, that journey. To turn to the Lord. To receive the Father's delight in clothing you. In exulting over you, in feeding you, in rejoicing over you. To use that, that language that's sitting up on the screen. In that quote, I'll bring it back up. Perhaps for some of us, you're, you're right now sitting in the first five verses of the story of Ruth. That's your story. You're not on the other side of tragedy. You're right in the middle of experiencing grief and sorrow and loss. And it's real and it's heavy. And maybe what God's inviting you to this morning is to bring your lament before him and to say yet again, I trust you. I can't see the next sentence in this story, the next paragraph, the next chapter, but I trust that the scriptures declare that this is who you are and I trust you for who you are, regardless of where I may be in the circumstances of my situation right now. Maybe for others of us, we know from the inside, this experience of redemption right now, this experience of what it is to, to have seen the, the ruin brought into a place of, of greater hope and redemption. Maybe God's calling us to rally around someone who's right in the middle of the lament and the brokenness. I have no idea what the Lord wants to do with these five verses, but I trust by us slowing down from overdrive to second gear and not quickly moving our way through chapter one, that, that the Lord will move and work in a, in a unique and powerful way. We're going to sing to this God. And with that, maybe these are lyrics that are hard for you to sing because deep down you struggle 
with whether or not you believe them in the moment as the words are coming out of your mouth. Maybe that even an opportunity to exercise trust and say, Lord, I don't feel it, but I believe it's true, and so I'm going to say it. I'm going to sing it. We'll also have an opportunity to receive the Lord's Supper. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you not to partake of the bread and the cup, but that your next step would be one of repentance and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are a Christian, many of you know this, we take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. There are communion stations to either side of the stage. There's a gluten-free station in the back corner there. Whenever you're ready to receive of those elements over the course of these next couple songs, you're welcome to go on your own time as you meet with the Lord and do so. I hate to give away the end from the beginning, but... This story is all about a a kinsman redeemer, a rescuer in Boaz. And where this story is headed is that it points to the greater Boaz, Jesus Christ, who's come to redeem his people from their sins. Let's remember that as we partake of the bread and the cup this morning. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.